Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 89, Dr. Trent Doherty on the Problem of Animal Pain. Dr. Trent Doherty is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He holds a Ph.D. in Philosophy from the University of Rochester and has also been a visiting scholar or professor at Oxford, the University of St. Andrews, the University of Notre Dame, and St. John Fisher College. He's here with us again this week to discuss his book, The Problem of Animal Pain, A Theodicy for All Creatures Great and Small. Dr. Doherty, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here again. Dr. Doherty, uh, congratulations on the publication of your 2014 book called The Problem of Animal Pain, A Theodicy for All Creatures Great and Small. How did you get the idea of writing this book? How did you get focused on the problem of animal pain in particular? Well, I come by it naturally, Dale. I've always been an animal lover, grew up surrounded by animals. Uh, my dad and I were both uh, dog trainers for hunting dogs, and we always had out on the farm, you know, a massive litter of cats that were just everywhere. And I grew up running through the woods and seeing possums and raccoons and bobcats and hawks and eagles and just every. I just grew up in a world enmeshed with nature and animals, and animals fascinated me and. Animals were at sometimes my closest companions growing up, and I always was fascinated by animal consciousness. I always wondered, what do they know? What do they think? What do they feel? Because my experience ran the gambit. There was my grandma who was convinced that her terrier knew exactly what she was thinking, you know, and felt her pain and sympathized with her. And then there was my grandpa for whom animals were just meat. And so I really wondered where on the spectrum the truth lay. And then when I became a Christian and started facing the objections to that worldview, I read C.S. Lewis naturally, and his book, The Problem of Pain, had a chapter on animal pain that I just found absolutely fascinating because it opened up new vistas that you know just were not talked about, including the possibility of animal resurrection, and um, even though it's not one that he really pursues in any direct or consistent way and then in the Narnia books there are talking animals and some animals make the transition back and forth between being talking animals or gaining that rational capability or losing that rational capability and so it was both my childhood and early high school and college reading of Lewis that first made me think you know one of these days I want to give an in-depth exploration of the problem of animal pain. I read this book, and it has three features that I really love in a book, and I wish more books had these features, and this is that it is short, <laughs> it is bold, and it's clearly argued. Hmm. If you're going to disagree with it, you're going to be able to pinpoint which little bit you disagree with, and and those are not small virtues. Those are <laughs> really important. Also, I like it that it, you try to stick to common sense as much as you can. Now, speaking of common sense, it's common sense that animals do feel pain and even can undergo very intense suffering. 
Not everybody agrees with that nowadays. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And thanks for those positive comments. It was intended to be short, and I, the sort of philosophy that I was trained in, the analytic school, one of the great things about the analytic school that I was trained in was it, it is a sort of a virtue of honesty. It says, look, I'm not going to hide my flaws in a bunch of fancy language. You'll know exactly where the weak points are. And I even try to highlight, you know, here's the weakest link in the chain here. And I'm just trying to, do, I try to make it clear throughout the book that I'm doing the best I can and it'll have different results for different people. The brevity was criticized in a recent review by Mike Murray, who also wrote a book on the problem of animal pain. But the fact is, I devoted two chapters to this view that denies or raises skeptical concerns about whether animals feel pain that he defended in his book. And so I, I gave a considerable amount of the book to a view that, that he defends and one that a lot of people, frankly, told me wasn't worth treating. So I ended up spending a considerable amount of time studying the neurology of pain generally. In fact, in a fellowship here at Notre Dame, uh, I think two or three years ago, I spent my entire fall semester studying the physiology of pain and, and reading through the pain, the philosophy of pain literature and ended up sort of becoming, you know, knowledgeable in that, ended up attending international conferences on the nature of pain. And while on that circuit, it was clear that the majority of pain theorists, both from within philosophy and those who are more on the neurological side, just thought the neocartesianism wasn't even worth taking seriously. I thought it was at least worth taking seriously enough to treat in the way that I did, which is to, to treat it as a sort of possible defeater to common sense. And I, I really tried to give it its due, but in the end, I judged that it fails to defeat the prima facie obvious appearance that animals do suffer in morally significant ways. Now, if I had to summarize the point of your book for a third grader, <laughs> or maybe a smaller kid, I would Which say, might be some of my biggest readership. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would say, Dr. Doherty thinks that yes, dogs go to heaven. Oh, yes, I've had so many all dogs go to heaven jokes. Although, you know, one of my students who did an independent study with me on this matter wrote a paper about, you know, what about the other side? What about, um, is, is there a way in which animals, even if they're endowed with the rationality that I argue that they may well be endowed with, chose against God. And so is the problem of, of hell for animals. And it was a challenging paper and it's something that I want to address uh, in the future. So, so the official view is all dogs have the chance to go to heaven. <laughs> there may, you know, I, I don't know about universalism for humans or universalism for animals, but everybody gets a chance. So another way to, to put it in less jokey form would be, in your view, animals, or at least uh, at least some animals, I'm not sure if we, we have to say that fleas are conscience, conscious, for instance, but anyway, at least all the higher animals and who knows exactly where it stops, someday will also be resurrected, and they will also have their capacities enhanced by God to where they can actually see and appreciate the value of their suffering 
and just you know form a judgment yeah that was worth it is that accurate enough that's right and this also pertains to the earlier question of how the book arose and I did notice that it was just when when the problem of animal pain was was raised well two things first the animal pro the problem of animal pain is raised frequently among my atheists and unbelieving friends it's raised more frequently than the problem of human suffering and the reason I think is that for human suffering there are at least some pretty good common sense strategies for reasoning to you know what's going on here one, one of the biggest ones having to do with free will character development and it was just it was just assumed without argument that nothing like this nothing in any way like this could apply to animals but because my faith journey put me in close contact with the eastern tradition of christianity the doctrine of theosis or deification was one that was always of interest to me and so what I argue in the book is that in a way it shouldn't be that surprising if or it would be surprising if humans were the only creatures whom God enhanced their capabilities and one of the one of the motivations for theosis for deification in the Eastern tradition was the hypostatic union the the union of the divine nature uh, with the the human nature of Jesus so there was this thought that because of that, because of that union, all humans who participate in human nature will be brought up somewhat into the divine nature. But the same fathers who talk about the deification as being motivated by the hypostatic union because the human nature is taken up into the divine nature also talk about ways in which all of creation is taken up into the divine nature and united to God. And then I sort of try to show that the very same motivations for human theosis apply to animal theosis, the creation in general. And then I note a few places in where, where we see images of that. And the, the coolest one is in uh, The Magician's Nephew when the horse, Strawberry, who is um, transported into Narnia in an, in an accident, gets in the flow of animals where... Aslan is giving them the gift of speech, which is just a cipher for the gift of reason. And he's, they sort of have this sort of coming to moment. And then the cabbie, Frank, who's also transported into Narnia in this accident, uh, they sort of wake up, as it were, and recognize one another. And they have this interesting discussion where the, where the cabbie says, oh, yeah, I remember we, we, used to, we used to have a milk route together. And then the horse says, uh, I remember you sitting on top of the cart with a whip, you know? And then the guy's like, well, you know, you ate those oats and those oats weren't free. We had to earn a living. So they have this interesting, like, coming to terms with whether or not Strawberry was treated justly by Frank. And that struck me as exactly the sort of thing that I would expect. I have to say, if this were to be true, I would be... Uh fearing some uncomfortable conversations with some cows and chickens. Well, cows and chickens, maybe, maybe not. But I think more in terms of, you know, the dogs that I've had or the cats that I've had that I haven't treated very nicely at times. For the, um, for the animals that one eats, I, I think those are different. Well, it depends on, you know, the, the cruelty that went into that. I, th I think the concern for me wouldn't be just the eating. George MacDonald has a really interesting, um, one of his uh, fantasy stories has a really interesting scene where some children wandering in the woods come into the, the home of a hermit 
and the hermit has these fish and he he plays a flute or something i forget which story it is and these fish sort of like fly into a pot and they're like wow what's going on there and they're like they they want to feed you they're like they're happy for you to now not everybody's going to jump on board with that right away but there, there's still this idea of you think of the we, we tend to respect the native american or the tribal person who who kills an animal to feed the village and then thanks the animal for giving that sacrifice and i gotta say you know i mean if there are taboos against human you know cannibalism for, for reasons that we can we can make sense of but you know i mean if there was a remote plane crash that i would i would be happy that my body fed fed people and kept them alive so there's there are issues there obviously but i do think that the concern for me wouldn't just wouldn't be the the eating part it would be how did i contribute to a system where they experienced unnecessary and unjust suffering in those cases So a lot of your book, you are, in a way, kind of tearing down philosophical barriers to people accepting this. One of them is the idea that animals don't have souls. But yeah, why not? If you believe in souls for humans, why couldn't at least higher animals also have souls? Mm -hmm. And uh, even you argue that even if they don't have souls, well, still, they could still be the same being that's resurrected. You, you argue that that's possible. Mm -hmm. I have to confess, there's a, I have a couple of barriers I don't think you address anywhere and uh, they're not they're not devastating objections but one is the thought that when it comes to human beings we've been given so much autonomy over how we develop ourselves and how we influence one another in development that each one is just truly unique and something would be lost if if god didn't still have that person and so then as long as people are reconciled to god they're not his enemies, basically, then he will have a motive to preserve every single human because they're all different and they're all valuable and sometimes hard to compare ways. Now, with dogs and cats, for instance, I've had a lot of good dogs and cats. Well, I've had a lot of good cats and my wife and I lucked out. The dog we have is like the smartest, nicest, happiest dog. Like We keep saying to ourselves, when this dog passes away, do we even buy another dog? Because it's going right. to be so dumb in comparison to this one. <laughs> yeah, seriously, if we've, we've, yeah, we, beginner's luck, first dog we had. But especially with cats, like I kind of think that, yes, they all have their quirks and little personality traits, but there aren't the kind of the deep differences between them. And maybe it would be just as wonderful if uh, there evolved some really different kind of being in the new heavens and the new earth. And it doesn't really have to have the same old cats in it. So first, there's some interesting research on our ability to interpret the mental lives of animals. So the cognitive scientists call, call this the ability to project thoughts and mental states onto other beings, a theory of mind. And so there are many instances that are pretty well documented where a human's ability to perceive the, the character and, and mental life of certain animals is obscured by the fact that some animals express their, their selves in ways that are very understandable to humans and in others not. For example, fish don't look nearly like 
humans in the way that dogs do. It's when you make a cartoon dog. They don't have they don't have expression. Right, and you know a dog has, their little eyes can be so sad or the little eyes can be so happy, and but a fish is just like, you know, it's a fish. It's just kind of gaping all the time. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so that led people to just think there's no way fish feel pain. There's no way fish have any kind of emotional life at all. Well, with much subtler testing these days they've determined that there's a lot more there to fish than people thought now i don't think anybody's going to run out and get you know a little like when we have we have a pet you know guppy but you know it's not like i'm going to cuddle with it or anything right but they do have more complex mental lives than we thought more personality than we thought because we weren't equipped to we evolved a theory of mind that is tuned to receive signals of a certain sort Eyebrows are super important for humans' theory of mind. Dogs have very expressive eyebrows. Cats don't. So I do think that one has to be really careful about these judgments for these reasons. Um, secondly, now I am a convert to cats. Uh, when I grew up, the cat's job was to keep my mice out of the woodshed. You know, we didn't. Cats were not cuddle things. The the women in my family have have made me a cat person. And I've got to say, and especially my, my oldest daughter is a bit of a cat whisperer. I mean, there are cats who respond to her in ways they don't to me. I think I'm sure that she perceives differences that I don't perceive. And I've, through getting, becoming more of a cat person, we, we rescue cats. And so we'll have five to eight, three to eight cats with an average of about five at any given time. And I think through year, now through having years of, of, of cats, and these are indoor-outdoor cats. They come and they go. And some of them will sleep with us and, and some of them will not. I, I think that there is more uniqueness there when we, than, than I used to see. And then we have the general scientific reasons to think that we weren't seeing some of the uniquenesses. But the main issue for me is just whether an in, so pain is intrinsically bad, I say. And, and then so that's step one. Step two is that these animals have experienced morally significant pain. And then step three is because God is good in the way that God is good, each and every instance of badness, which includes every, each and every instance of pain, pain being intrinsically bad, has to be compensated for in some way. Now, it could be that some animals' lives are good enough on balance that they don't stand in need of compensation, and maybe God doesn't resurrect them, but others do. So to me, it's, it's very much driven morally. So even if it were the case that they were kind of all of a piece, um, that wouldn't stop me from, from having the moral motivations that I have to think that their, their suffering has to be compensated for. They're conscious and they are within the realm of moral concern. Yeah. Even though they're not, in the technical sense, persons, they can't be praiseworthy or blameworthy, but still there are things that should and shouldn't be done concerning them. And your view is that every everything they suffer has to be compensated to them, to the one That's who right. suffered. It can't be in terms of benefit, just right. benefits to another. Right. They can't just be, be uh, mere means. Now, I argue in the book for an expansion of the idea of the Imago Dei to animals. I argue that humans are in the image of God in a very special sort of way, but 
that the very same things that uh, lead us to think of humans as being in the image of God are true just to, to lesser degrees of all conscious beings. In fact, all living beings are in, in some sense made in the image of God. So I, so I argue that we need to think of this in, tr- in a sliding scale. And I argue that any conscious being uh, or any being capable of suffering pain to a certain degree has moral standing, has standing in the moral, moral realm, and by which I just mean God has a reason to prevent their suffering. I don't argue that animals have rights, but I do argue that they have moral standing and that moral standing is enough for us to say that God needs to compensate them for their suffering. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. My other concern is, and maybe this is just a hangover from Aristotelian philosophy, but uh, most of us believe that there have to be Uh, something like essences that Mm -hmm. just simply for the fact that not anything can change into anything else. So I could turn into a taller guy or a shorter guy. Maybe I could be transformed into a woman. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it seems like those things are possible. But, you know, most of us would want to say that even God couldn't turn a potato into, I don't know, an angel or a human. I mean, he could annihilate a potato and then create a human right in the same spot. But he couldn't, (laughs) it wouldn't be... The human that came into existence wouldn't be a former potato. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Potato Head is a possible <laughs> counterexample to your theory there, Dale. <laughs> Wait, he's not a potato either. <laughs> he only looks like one. Um, <laughs> I've met some people like that. So, I mean, with the old, you know, medieval uh, and ancient outlook, a cat would have catness. Mm-hmm. And uh, catness would be what it what it essentially is. And it, and, uh, it looks like it would provide boundaries against its being a full-blown person that is in the sense of a moral agent with responsibility but this isn't obvious i mean you might say why couldn't uh, an all-powerful being just make a super smart cat i have known some pretty clever cats yeah no i feel it mostly because a few people have pressed it and lewis himself this is one of lewis's biggest objections i am an aristotelian broadly speaking this this I didn't feel this objection so much from the inside. I attribute that, I think, to, again, my theotic thinking that 
what so C.S. Lewis has this wonderful essay, the, the Weight of Glory, which is really one of the most important things he ever wrote. He says there are no ordinary people, that every person we meet will one day, he says, either be a glory so amazing that we will be tempted to worship it, or a horror such as we now meet only in nightmares. And that's true. And if you believe in the doctrine of theosis and you think about what humans will be like a trillion, trillion years hence, you would not think this is consistent with being a human. Also, think of the incarnation. I think every Christian has a reason to believe that essences are more flexible than we might think. So you'd think being God and being man, uh, that humanness and divinity would also have properties that would make them not such that nothing could instantiate both at the same time and yet if you i think that work on work on the incarnation shows that that's not so now also in line with theodic thinking think of the embryonic stage of a human you know think of a race of uh, fruit fly people who whose lives are you know at most a few minutes all they know of embryos is the, their three-minute existence. And all anybody's ever known about humans has been these, that they're these embryos. Like, what is a, what is a human? Like, humans the, over there, they're these embryos. And nobody would ever think that, that those things could ever become, you know, Shakespeare and Einstein or even a toddler. They're at a stage of development where the powers of their soul are being revealed progressively and so so much so that you know Aquinas even talked about the the developing human first getting the vegetative soul then getting this the the sentient soul then getting the rational soul and so I just think that humans are just as I think humans are in their embryonic stage uh, of development even now and I think that each kind of animal can be seen as being in their very early stages of development in the same sort of way to where you just can't predict how far this could go. If all you ever knew were toddlers of humans, if, if suppose every human over the age of two were just annihilated and then some Martians came down and looked at the human race and looked at, you know, Shakespeare and Einstein's works, they'd say, well, one race must have been annihilated and replaced by some other race that doesn't have anything like the same capacities as those. Or, or maybe it's in newborn infants, or maybe it's, again, maybe it's embryos in test tubes, or however you play it, the idea is that the, the, f we know that there are entities that have stages such that if you observed it at that stage, you would never be able to guess that it was going to have the kind of capabilities that, it, that we know that they eventually come to have. I wonder if a, there might be a kind of argument from silence in, in Scripture against this position. So, granted that the Bible presents a high picture of animals as intrinsically good, maybe even in some sense made in God's image, but you might argue that you know the community of the redeemed is viewed basically as uh, Jesus and quote his brothers, which is the human community. You would think that, um, granted, there is talk about making a new heavens and a new earth, and so in some sense all creation is redeemed. Yeah. You might take that to be um, compatible with uh, not including the animals or different kind of animals or 
something. But I mean, wouldn't you expect there to be something about, hey, you know, some of these animals that maybe you're mistreating, these are your future brethren. These are, these are going to be your, uh, yeah. just on a par with Christians. Yeah, I think that it would be, certainly it'd be nice if there was some of that. I do think we have some hints. One of the things I did not realize until I was translating scripture, I was translating the Latin Vulgate Bible, and so paying much more careful attention to the, to the actual wording, it was, dur- it was doing that in college that I literally for the first time realized that in Genesis, the animals are not given to humans to eat. The plants are given to the animals and the humans. And I had always just sort of read that in parallel structure as these plants are given to the animals for food, the animals are given to the humans for food. I just like literally misread it. Like my eyes had to have seen the words, but my brain interpreted them differently. And the eating of meat is only a concession that comes antediluvian. And then in the parousia, we're, we're told the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's a very weird sort of lion-lamb relationship. Something about the lion and the lamb have changed dramatically. Now, you might just think that's a mere metaphor, but uh, I don't know that you have to take it that way. And, and the bottom line is, I mean, these sorts of objections come up in a lot of contexts. Right now, I'm reviewing Hud Hudson's book, the fall and hypertime, and he faces this objection too. You know, like, there's nothing in the Bible about you know multiple dimensions of time and in the previous book on hyperspace. But he points out that you know this is true of all of physics. You know, everybody who holds any kind of sophisticated view about the world is going to have to say face the fact that Genesis doesn't mention any of this. Genesis doesn't mention nebulae or gravity, and it just doesn't. It doesn't. This is not what this story is about. If you break scripture down into the parts, there's no part where you would necessarily expect this. The Gospels are the story of Jesus' uh, mission on earth. Acts has his, uh, the story of the early church. Paul is writing occasional letters. to specific. There's no real clear spot where it would, be, it would be that relevant. There's all kinds of really important things that we all accept and think are important. Uh, because it seems to be, Scripture seems to have, the New Testament seems to have laser focus on Jesus and what Jesus has done for humanity. And it just doesn't seem to, to be interested in any distractions. interesting things in this book is that you try to turn around the issue of evil on the atheist yeah and some people are will grant the point that okay it could be that god exists and there is just some evil of some kind okay fine but come on there's surely just way too much evil and uh, too many rotten kinds of evil out there and you don't prove of this too much evil idea why not? Well, I used to kind of feel that because one does get just overwhelmed by facts, right? 
And I think this is just how we're built. We add things up in our in our heads. And this last week actually has been one of these weeks where it's just been one uh, sad thing after another has come my way. This person, that person, the other person has had these really, really bad things happen to them, close people to me. And you just have this feeling like I, not one more thing. I cannot handle one more bit of bad news right now. But I think that speaks to our limited cognitive capacities. Lewis points out that there's no one who suffers the sum total of pain and that God's dealings are with individuals and that I'm, I'm, I've even come to doubt somewhat that there's any sensible way to talk about the value of a world, to talk about aggregates. God loves each person and that hypothesis has to be born out in each person's life. And so that just makes the too much suffering thing a, a mistake. Now, the too much suffering in terms of uh, uh, sort of horizontal, the, 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 the expanse of it. But it also puts a lot of pressure on the, what we might call the, the, the vertical column of too much. Like in an individual life, it seems like in some individual lives, there is just too much suffering. And that I take desperately seriously. You're saying uh, too much for what? Because if the end is saint, what you call saint making, then uh, hey, it looks like maybe it's just about the right amount. Yeah, and this is something that I mean, like Lewis said in the problem of pain, it's he jests at scars who never felt a wound, and I just haven't had the kind of suffering that bothers me. I've been, I have not experienced the kind of suffering that I think is the really problematic kind of suffering. So that needs to be acknowledged. However, the fact is, most of the people I know who have suffered in these horrific ways don't end up less confident that God exists. They end up more confident that God exists. And one day I'd like to do a book just of stories of people who've undergone extensive, radical, horrible suffering. And one of the things I did to try to force my feet to the fire is to read some of the Holocaust literature. That's just really hard to do. But the fact of the matter is that there's just book after book after book of people who experienced suffering that I, I honestly believe would break me. Like, I don't think I would be one of the people who came out of the Holocaust, one of these stories of triumph. I think I would break and I would crack. But many many people did not and it's just amazing what came what has come out of the the how how humans have triumphed over even the worst that other humans have done to them and there's this i forget the name of this this, this principle but the principle is hitler cannot win he he must not win and there there are many ways in which hitler has been ultimately defeated by the people who he hurt most because they survived and they went on to be full, whole people and testaments to the durability of the human spirit and are great and inspirational people. So there is this amazing ability of humans to withstand even the worst that humans have done to them. We don't live in a world where every person suffers soul-crushing defeat. 
if we were in such a world, I would take that to be nearly conclusive evidence that there wasn't a God. But on the other hand, I honestly think that a, a, a sort of a world of, of delights would not suggest to me the existence of God because I would think, well, this is, if there's a God, he wants something more than this. This is just, you know, we got into some kind of lucky universe. We just sort of won the cosmic lottery. So I do think that there are degrees of suffering or world ensembles that, that include ranges of suffering that don't fit nearly as well with theism as the current range does. And even though that doesn't narrow things very much, it narrows it much more than naturalism. And so if you're using a Bayesian method and the Bayes factor method, then it's about the ratio. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't, you don't need to have a situation where, gosh, theism makes this likely. In fact, it could be fairly surprising on theism. But if it's fairly surprising on theism, and very, very surprising indeed on atheism, then the data actually, in that case, confirm theism. And I don't think this has been recognized enough that it really is this, this sort of, it came as a revelation to me as I was just thinking through these issues and structurally, if, if the distribution and magnitude, the data concerning the distribution and magnitude of evil are run through a Bayesian filter and we think about what we would actually expect from God, then it's, it's as likely to me that they confirm theism as that they disconfirm it, which was a surprising result for me. So if we're going to have a world where there can be the kind of extreme character development that we think is so incredibly valuable you're going to have to have really extreme circumstances and extreme suffering just to make that possible, right? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. And then, but that, that because it depends on our freely chosen long-term response, that extreme suffering is going to make it possible for there just to be a person who just bitter is bitter and hates God and wants to die and kill everybody, <laughs> take them with them. Yeah, there surely have been such people. I want to first again, because I don't think this can be said enough, the view is not that God causes or brings about, facilitates, or even probabilifies any specific instance of suffering. Rather, the idea is that in making a world ensemble for there to be a human drama to be played out, we would not expect God to create a world that did not give people the scope of morally significant freedom that we find. A world that did not have scope for that kind of freedom, scope for that kind of virtue, and the vices that go along with them. That is not the kind of world that I would expect a perfect God to create, because I would expect a perfect God to be most interested in the highest values. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person has to undergo that suffering because not every single person has to be a saint, but that the world has to be consistent with it. The world has to include that sort of thing as part of the whole panoply of goods that a world includes. I am perfectly happy to say that it's good. So think about Tolkien's world. There are these amazing creatures, the Valar. There are these, you know, you think about if you, if you really know the history of Elrond and some of the other sort of high elves, these creatures are just amazing. And if you know the history of Strider, there's also these hobbits, right? They're just like hanging out. You know, they're, they're, they're just, there's nothing majestic 
about the Hobbit's way of, it's good that there be beings of all these strata. And that's the, the sort of a, a, a world of nothing but Hobbits would not be the world that I think a perfect God would be interested in. A perfect God is going to want a world that is going to allow for and be consistent with beings like the Valar, like Gandalf, the kind of being that Gandalf is, and the, and the beings, if you've read the Silmarillion, that created, that actually did the, the work of creating the world that God commissioned to create the world. And that means beings of great intelligence and power. And that means the possibility, maybe in some ways inevitability, of there being at least some serious, significant oppression. And so, so the idea is not that God brings these things and says, here is your test. The idea is that here is a world of a wide range of beings with a wide range of abilities and powers. And, and it is just part of that is the possibility for these things. So I just want to make it perfectly clear that none of, I, 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 I would be appalled by anyone who said that the Holocaust was something that God brought about in order to bring about the greater good of the virtues or whatever. It just I find that morally repugnant. Bringing about a world in which that sort of thing can happen occasionally is more what, what he intended. The, the conjunction of the, the goods and the, and the evils that, that are likely to go along with them is better than the absence of both. That's sort of the bottom line. When you read The Lord of the Rings, that's, that's the kind of world that, you know, the, one of the reasons why we think, why he was the author of the tw 20th century, according to Time Magazine, and why he continues to spark imaginations in a way that, that very, very few other authors do. I mean, Rowling can't come close to touching Tolkien in terms of the way that he has touched people and the way his stories have touched people. And that is in part because of the world that Tolkien creates. But that's just our world. And so, so our world is, is really is just the right kind of world. So many times when people are having a visceral reaction to evil and, uh, and start objecting to belief in God on the basis of evil, I kind of wonder if people are just thinking, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you're, look, you're a nice guy. Mm -hmm. You don't want to hurt anybody. You want to just get along. But, I mean, I think God would say... <laughs> Son, you don't know what it's like being God. <laughs> there were some funny movies, you know, in the past, starting with an old, old movie where George Burns played God. I can't even, I think it was the movie was called Oh God. And then there was one called Bruce Almighty, where Morgan Freeman, I think, played God. And they both played God very well. And there's sort of this motif, like, like they're just like, you have no idea how difficult my job is. And I, I do think that that stands for a real truth, which is the way in which an entire universe is, is, is a complex entity, the, the, the goods and bads and intricacies of which are going to be complicated. And this is sort of the truth in the sort of low-grade common-sense skeptical theism of not being super confident that you would be able to do it right. Peter Van Inwigen is really good about pressing people on these things. Now, he has too high a standard. He basically says to object to the way God made the world, you kind of have to actually have a, a working model. You know, you, like you have to like write down some laws of physics. Uh, he, that's a little much. But, you know, there's, the, the point's well taken. You'd have to really put some time and effort 
into thinking about how a world would be better to be really confident that the world isn't as uh, the, the kind of world that we would expect from God. And then there's just the limitations on, you know, we don't know how many worlds there are. We don't, we have, we have essentially no evidence that, that this is, that this world ensemble is the only one God has or will make. You know, if you buy any kind of principle of plenitude coming out of the Neoplatonic tradition, which was popular throughout different periods of the Middle Ages, then you'd expect God to create lots of worlds, maybe I- infinite worlds, if that's possible. And so to judge the case for being on our minuscule sample is, is pretty rough. Now, the exception here is what I call the common sense problem of evil, where there may be specific individual instances of suffering that strike you as intrinsically impermissible. And then no considerations of additive value or aesthetic balancing off does anything if it's intrinsically impermissible to allow that to occur to somebody. That's, I think, really the forefront of the problem of evil when it comes to any creature is, are there, is there a case to be made that, the, that something has occurred that is intrinsically impermissible? And there people often point to horrors and there again, part of the way of understanding that is, I think, in talking to people who've suffered horrors. And uh, so and I think those data just, just are not ones that clearly favor atheism. Dr. Doherty, thank you for talking with us. It's my pleasure, Dale. I appreciate the time. This week's thinking music has been The Portal by Little Glass Men. You can hear this track unadulterated at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Some of you have been sending in questions for an upcoming Q&A episode that I'm going to do. Thank you. There's probably room for a few more in the episode. So if you'd like to upload a recording of yourself, there's a link for that on this blog post. Also, thank you to Sean in the UK for his donation. Your support means a lot to me. There are a lot of great things coming up on the Trinity's podcast. I already mentioned the question and answer episode. I've also recorded some fantastic interviews with really interesting Christian intellectuals, specifically on the topics of atonement theories and monotheism, and specifically when did monotheism arise in the history of the world's religions. And there's a lot more than that in the works. Show ideas, of course, are always welcome by email. Thanks, and I'll see you next Monday. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.